Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. I'm Sonny Bunch, culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, and I'm very, very excited to be joined today by George Folsey Jr., editor of exploitation classics like Hammer and Black Caesar, comedy classics like Animal House and The Blues Brothers, uh, and horror films like The Hostel series. Uh, George has worked with all sorts of great directors, including John Landis, Michelangelo Antonioni, uh, and John McTiernan, and has done some uncredited edit room assists on cult classics like Pootie Tang and Jennifer's Body. Um, George is a second-generation Hollywood talent. His father was a cinematographer who was nominated for 13 Oscars, including Meet Me in St. Louis uh, and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Thank you for being on the show, George. Before we start talking about the art of editing, I want to talk a little bit how you got into the business and your your family connection there. Well, um, when I was growing up, my father was already an established uh, cinematographer at MGM. He had come out from New York in uh, 1934 and immediately got a job at at MGM. And so I was able to uh, go down and visit his set many, many times. I'm actually eating off, I had my breakfast off a silver tray that uh, Judy Garland gave to my parents when I was born. So I still have this um, little silver tray. And uh, so I went down on my dad's set all the time. It was only about 15, 20 minutes from where we lived in Brentwood. And my aunt, my dad's sister, was a writer's secretary at Warner Brothers. And she would take me every weekend to a double feature whatever movies were playing, usually at the Bay Theater in in Santa Monica. So I just kind of grew up in the business. Uh, My dad wanted me, he wanted me to have a profession because he thought the uh, motion picture business was very capricious and unreliable. Of course, he hadn't been out of work for like, during his career, I don't think he was ever out of work for more than 15 minutes. Yeah. But um, anyway, I ended up at uh, Pomona College where they did not have either a film school or an engineering department. I ended up in uh, atomic physics, even though I was pretty good at math because my mother was born in Syria and she was an Arab, 100% Syrian, and she was really good at math and good at playing cards. But uh, my math skills were no match for nuclear physics. So Mm. I ended up doing a uh, history minor with an English literature major, which served me very, very well in my career. And I ended up working at KABC uh, TV, the local station. And I didn't want to be... I was uncomfortable with the idea of that all my dad's cameraman friends got their sons immediately into the union uh, just because of the legacy. Mm-hmm. And I thought, hmm, just it kind of rubbed me the wrong way. So I thought, well, maybe I'll try something different. Uh, after I graduated from Pomona, I got a job at KBC as a as an apprentice editor and uh, $89 a week. <laughs> and uh, this is 1962. And I worked my way up 
I ended up cutting the news, which was really great experience. And you get had to be fast and sharp, cutting time out of shows for the run on the local station and cutting documentaries. So I had quite an amount of experience in editing by the time I got to to becoming an assistant editor for a famous editor named Henry Berman, who worked at MGM. He cut Gunga Din, and one of the, the pictures that we worked on was Grand Prix, and he won an Academy Award for that. So I thought, gee, this is, this is great. You know? I then ended up making a movie in my house, mainly in my house, and in and around Los Angeles. My dad was the cinematographer, and I was the camera operator with a gear head, mm-hmm. a Warrell head. Yeah, could and you explain I, what that, uh, what exactly that is for? Because I, I frankly don't even really know what that, what that means. Well, a That's Warrell so, so... head, the gear head, is like there's a wheel that tilts the camera up and down, and there's a wheel on the side that pans the camera left and right, and it's kind of a coordination between those two things to keep the shot framed correctly. Mm-hmm. And I grew up playing a game called the Big Maze, which had a similar set of wheels, pan and tilt. And I was pretty good at this. And so switching over to the Warrell head, the gear head, which I really wanted to do, uh, was you know relatively uh, okay for me to do it. And we shot this movie with a 35 millimeter Eclair camera, the French camera, in a blimp to keep, you know, for the sound. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> Haskell Wexler gave us the camera and it was a great experience for me. We ended up with a minority crew, and uh, Eric Roth, who wrote uh, Forrest Gump, was our gaffer. And it was it was very, you know. I raised the money, I edited the movie, and um, it wasn't a very good movie, but <laughs> it was pretty well made. Yeah. So a friend of mine at Pomona had worked with John Landis in Yugoslavia. And he asked me if I would meet with John about a, a movie that John, who was 21 years old at the time, wanted to do a spoof on King Kong. So I said, sure. And we met, and I thought he was pretty sharp. And even though the script was only 50 pages, he kind of did the whole movie for me, acted out every part. And I, I was convinced this guy could pull it off. So I ran the movie that I had made. It was called Glass Houses. And it was Jennifer O'Neill's first movie. And he agreed with me that the movie was very well made, but it wasn't a very good movie. Yeah. So anyway, we ended up working on Schlock, which was this spoof on King Kong. And then uh, John became a... Uh, we're trying to get someone going and ended up being a waiter. I can only imagine John Landis as a waiter. <laughs> but anyway, I ended up through the connections that I had made on glass houses, I ended up cutting 
uh, a whole bunch of black exploitation movies. Uh, as, as you mentioned in the intro, uh, Black Caesar, The Hammer, and uh, I'll tell a quick story about one of the best black exploitation movies I think that was made at that time called J.D.'s Revenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this was a movie that starred Glenn Turman. And there were about four or five different flashback sequences in the movie on this killing floor, which was the original title of the movie. Mm-hmm. And the director, Arthur Barnes, and I decided that we would that we would try to do something like play these sequences in in sepia instead of straight color to differentiate them from the present day period uh, stuff. So I get a call from Arthur one day, and the, the movie is just about finished. We're we're in really good shape here, and he says, "George, you've got to make a." a black and white dupe of the movie to send mm-hmm. to the sales department at AIP. Now, we had made black and white parts of these flashbacks to show with how they would differentiate themselves from the color parts. So I said, Arthur, you know, if we make a black and white dupe, everything's going to look the same, and it's going to be pretty confusing. So, no, you got to do it. You just got to do it. What I should have done is I should have I should have made a dupe, and I should have sent the color with the black and white stuff and the flashbacks over to the sales department. Wish I had done that. So of course the sales department ran this black and white reproduction of, of my work print, and they thought the movie was a disaster, <laughs> completely confusing. Yeah. And you know who would blame them because they. You couldn't tell the flashbacks from the present day. And uh, Arthur Marks, whom I really enjoyed working with, just just kind of let me kind of carry the ball. And this is one of the issues where you can get into real, real trouble uh, when you're trying to protect the movie. And Mm -hmm. I wasn't taking sides. I was just trying to do what I thought was best for the movie. So... I ended up having a meeting with Sam Arkoff, who's mm-hmm. the legendary head of AIP, and he just crucified me for for the stupidity of the editing, all this stuff. I <laughs> tried to explain to him that you know his sales department had not seen a, a really representative version of the movie. Didn't matter. We basically hurt the movie pretty seriously by actually simplifying it and making it a much, much less of a movie. It still was a very good movie. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway. Yeah. Well, when you're when you were cutting these black exploitation movies, were you basically cutting them while they were being shot? I'm just curious what the process is like. Would you get, you know, the dailies back and put together the work print? How how did that work? Yes, I would. Uh, I would get the dailies every day and I had an assistant and he would sync them up. And at this point, Henry Berman had taught me an organizational system for editing, which I still use to this day. It's really a very, very good way to organize the film and how to look through all the dailies 
and decide what's, what you're going to do. And Henry never, never cut a scene until he had run everything, at least from the beginning, from the earliest and the widest, down through the latest and the tightest shots in, in a scene. Mm-hmm. And then he would cut from the back because he had just run those last close-ups. And he would pull out the pieces that he thought he would need. And by the time he got back to the master, you know, you've seen the scene 25 times. So you basically could play the scene in your head. So you know what you want to do. It was just a very, very good way. It it took a little, you you had to be pretty concentrated in knowing how the the scene played and what what moments you wanted to hit. Mm-hmm. But it was the best way to do it I'd ever seen anyway. Uh, yes, I, I was cutting as we, we went along, and uh, it worked out. It worked out pretty well. Yeah. Can I? I just want to ask about that process a little bit because I find it really interesting the the going backwards uh, through through the scene um, idea. I mean, I I you know as somebody who has had I've never I've never cut a, a film and I you know I don't I don't know what that's like. Are you just looking for individual standout moments on the on the on the close ups and the the medium shots uh, that you can kind of work into the master? How does that? How, what is it? What intellectually? What are you looking for? Well, interestingly, every every scene that you cut is different. So there's no hard and fast rule about how you should approach it. And um, when 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 the editors moved over to the chem, the especially the the old time guys, I was a bit of a younger guy, but the older the older guys, they couldn't stand the chem because they in order to get to a shot that they wanted to get to, they'd have to plow through maybe eight minutes of footage because all the dailies were in these big thousand-foot chemicals. Mm-hmm. So the thing that's, that really made them happy was when we went to electronic editing. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, they had immediate access to any shot that you wanted to get, much quicker than we ever had on film. And uh, it, was, it was interesting that the old guys just just didn't cotton to the chem at all. Mm-hmm. But what I ended up doing was what, what Henry would do is he would sometimes run everything from the back and cut from the front. And I felt that the way we wanted to organize the film for the chem it made no sense to put the close-ups first and then go back into the two shots and wider shots. So I ended up just kind of reversing the process. So what I did was I would uh, say there were 3,000 feet worth of dailies on a particular scene. I would go through the first 1,000 feet, and I had these little junior legal pads, and I would just take my notes, see them, pieces that I liked, and knowing the the footage where that shot occurred, because I had the counter on the cam, and it, it matched the code number that was on the roll. Mm-hmm. And then I'd go through the next uh, thousand feet of the next one. When I got to the last thousand foot roll, I would just keep it in the cam, 
and I would go backwards and pull out all the pieces that I had indicated in my little junior legal pad and just hang them up in roughly the order that I thought they would appear. Mm-hmm. And, and then I would just assemble the scene that way. And my kind of guideline for doing this would be maybe if a scene was going to play two minutes long, maybe there was uh, 30 minutes of dailies for a two-minute scene, be about right. I would end up with what I would call my pull, which was all the pieces that I had pulled out. And I would have that end up somewhere between three and five minutes long. Mm-hmm. And then I would take that pull and put it in the cam and fix it. You know, sometimes if I, there were two or three different line readings of a particular line, and I wasn't sure which one I wanted to use, i pull all three. It was very easy to make the determination what was the best reading when you were in the context of a three or four or five minute time frame, as opposed to those three different line readings, 10, 12 minutes apart. So the fact that they were all together and you were in the context pretty much of the way the scene should play, it was very easy to make the determination. So that's that's kind of how we did it. So one of the things you'd mentioned to me is that you worked on Michelangelo Antonioni's The Passenger, which was very exciting for me to hear because that's that's a film I actually studied in college. I was uh, in one of my film classes. Um, and uh, of course, that movie's famous for its long takes and its and the performance by Jack Nicholson, of course. But like it is a it is a really fascinating story. And I, I, you you told me that you had a bit of an issue with the head of MGM on that one. Well, this is this is an example of how easy it is to get into trouble. Uh, like I got into trouble with Sam Arkoff and I got into trouble with Dan Melnick, the head of MGM. What happened was uh, Lewis Rackmill, who was a vice president at MGM, was kind of my mentor. And he gave me a lot of work when I was first married. He was really took great care of me. He had worked with my dad. He was a wonderful man. And he said, George, I want, I want to come over with uh, Jack Nicholson over to your editing room tomorrow afternoon after lunch. And we want to run on your moviola. This was, you know, back in the early 70s. We want to run this movie that, uh, that he just did with Antonioni. And I said, great. So Jack Nicholson and Lou Rackbill and I spent about four and a half hours, five hours, going through the entire cut, the current cut that Antonio had of the passenger. And Lou would say, okay, Jack, so what's happening in this scene? (laughs) Because the studio had seen the movie and they just were like, duh. What the hell is this? <laughs> uh, so anyway, there was a scene, and you know that you obviously, since you studied it, you know the movie. And I don't know if you've ever seen this scene because I don't think it's ever been shown. Mm-hmm. But there was a scene in a beer garden in Germany 
where a guy approaches Nicholson and calls him by a different name and is convinced that he knows it. And it raises the implication that maybe the Nicholson character has done this uh, identity change mm-hmm. before. And it raised all kinds of interesting implications, like, oh, my God. So anyway, Antonioni comes over and brings a new cut of the movie. And he and I are working away, looking at this. And I just innocently say, yeah, gee, Michelangelo, um, what happened to the beer garden scene? And he says, well, the studio, they think the movie is too long and they think that that's confusing. And like an idiot, I happen to say, gee, Michelangelo, that's the most Antonioni-esque scene <laughs> in the movie. It raises all kinds of implications. that maybe he did this before. I mean, oh, my God. And Antonioni says, oh, I'm so happy to hear you say that. And can I tell the studio what you think? And I'm sort of like, uh-oh, it's the end of my career. <laughs> I said, well, I I guess, but, uh, you know, they'll probably be pretty bad at me. So he did. And the next morning I get this call from Dan Milnick. He is not a happy camper. He said, God damn it, you don't change these changes that we wanted to make. And somehow I had the presence of mind to say, you know, Dan, I want to be a team player. I want to do what the studio wants to do. But you if I'm going to be a team player, you've got to give me the signals. I didn't know that you wanted this scene out of the movie. I mean, I think it's a terrific scene, but if you want it out, okay. I'm sorry. And it saved my job. <laughs> but it just shows you that it's it doesn't take much to get into trouble. You know? Yeah. Well, you you mentioned something uh, earlier that, that that's very interesting. the The idea that you don't want to take sides you're not you're not looking to take sides between the studio and the director. You're you're trying to do what's best for the picture. And I'm curious from your perspective, as both a technician, as an editor, and as somebody who has to work in Hollywood and has to has to deal with studios and and that sort of thing. How do you balance those two ideas? I mean, how do you keep the how do you keep the director and the studio kind of on your side at the same time? Or is that impossible? Well, it, it, it kind of depends on your relationship with the director. And uh, if you've demonstrated to the director that you're willing to argue with him, and in all the movies that I edited and produced with John Landis, we fought a lot during the uh, editorial process uh, in a nice way, but strongly he he was very very strong-minded and uh, you know we we kind of taught ourselves you know we had this kind of theory that comedy is very reactive so we were both on the same page there but you know with Landis I never had we never had much problem with the studio we invited the studio into the cutting room to look at scenes out of the context of the whole movie, we had no no problem in showing the studio scenes that we had cut. On coming to America, where we had this very tight release schedule, I told Frank Mancuso that 
the studio wasn't going to see dailies. And he sort of looked at me like, what? He said, what we're going to do is we will send you cut scenes. They may not be perfect, but they will be close because we've worked together, you know, John and Malcolm Campbell and I, and I was editing Coming to America as well as producing it. We will send you cut scenes. And Frank said, you mean I don't have to sit there and watch an hour worth of dailies every day? He said, yes. He said, deal. <laughs> so anyway, to answer your question, I mean, here's an example on basic, uh, the movie I cut for John McTiernan. I had known uh, Mike Metavoy, the head of the studio. We had done Three Amigos uh, with him. And when he was down in Jacksonville, he looked at stuff that I had cut, and he got the idea that I was consistently on John McTiernan's side. And it took me a while, a couple of days, to really convince him, showing him different things, that I was just trying to protect the movie. And to Metaboy's credit, he he backed off and he said, okay, I get mm -hmm. it. I get it. Well, can I ask can I ask for an example of what Metavoy would be looking at? Uh, and thinking, oh, wh why is why is George on John's side on this? I don't I don't get it. You know what what is what what were the things he wanted that he thought you weren't giving him? You know, I I wish I could give you a really concrete example of something like this, but um, you know, I really can't remember exactly. But somehow, somehow, Metavoy got the impression that I was. John McTiernan's guy was on McTiernan's side. And I'd been around long enough to know that the safest place for me to be was just protecting the movie. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought, you know, actually McTiernan was pretty, pretty easy to work with in the editing room. He saw what I was trying to do. He got it. And he was, he was fine. But Metaboy just, uh, he was having a lot of problems with McTiernan. And I think he was just afraid that I was one more, you know, source of irritation mm -hmm. and another guy that was going to be on McTiernan's side against uh, Metaboy. And that, that really wasn't true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, that's, it, it, McTiernan uh, has, I think, kind of a famously prickly reputation but he is one of the great action directors of the the 80s and, and early 90s for sure and i think basic came out in what in 2003 so i mean all the way through all the way through then well i would like to make one comment about mctiernan's sure who i think is a very complicated guy and i i would just like to say that on basic and, and basic is ba is really very much a dialogue movie mm -hmm. which i is kind of more my strength. I mean, I'm okay at cutting action, but but I'm, I'm my strength is really cutting dialogue scenes. Mm -hmm. And I realized when I was cutting basic that this guy, McTiernan, was really good at shooting dialogue scenes. And contrary to his reputation for being an action director, he was really sensitive, smart, picked excellent angles, knew when to move the camera, you know, did the little European dolly that floated around. He just, 
he was really good at it. And, you know, I think he has a, uh, you know, when everybody wants to be pigeonholed, mm-hmm. editors, cameramen, everybody, you know, my dad was a famous photographer of women, uh, Myrtle Lloyd, Joe Crawford. And, and everybody wants to say, well, he's this kind of cameraman or this kind of editor. He can only mm-hmm. do this. Jeez, you know, if you're an editor, you ought to be able to do it all. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's an interesting line in uh, oh God, I want to say it's um, uh, Sidney Lumet's book, Making Movies, and he's talking about editing, and he he says, you know, somebody, uh, one of the editors who had worked on one of his films was praised as having a distinct style, and he thought, well, that that doesn't sound right because you know, if you're an editor, you should be working in the style of the movie, um, within, within the style of the film itself. And I'm curious from your, from your perspective, I mean, you just mentioned, you know, you, uh, feel like you're more of a dialogue, uh, cutter, but you, I mean, you've made, you've made action movies, you've made horror movies, uh, the hostile films, right? Um, what is the difference when you're working, when you're working within those different genres, how do you approach them as an editor, um, in terms of, rhythm and timing and all that stuff exactly the same as as how i would do any scene in a movie sure you you know you know that in a horror film you're going to end up cutting it in a way that makes the scares more powerful adding tension but but it's just you know this is going to sound pretty stupid but it's just common sense you know if you I remember my son and I were cutting a movie one time independently for a couple of ladies, and the director just didn't have any idea how to make a thriller. And he ended up constantly dissipating all the tension out of a scene, and we would fix it and put it back, and he would put it back the other way. And it was like, what are we here for? This is ridiculous. You know, I mean, just, you know, some people just never learn. I'll tell you, Landis, Landis was pretty quick study about how to do things. Yeah. Which is why we got along so well. Yeah. This is a very specific and weird question. So feel free to pass on it if it doesn't make any sense. But can you actually build comic timing in a, in, in the editing bay? Or is that something that has to be on the, captured on the film? I mean, can you put it together and in a way that that makes it work if the team itself has not quite captured it? Absolutely. I mean, that's that's absolutely what you need to do. If the timing is a little bit off, you've got to find a way to fix that timing in a way that just looks like it's completely organic. You know, it, it's it, you know, comedy is probably the trickiest thing to cut because. One little mistake, you know, you're on a shot too long, you're on a shot not long enough, and like, what happened there um, will take you right out of the scene. Mm-hmm. And, and and it's, you know, you've really got to be, to be careful. And again, Landis and I, our, our theory was that comedy is reactive. It's actually almost funnier to see somebody's reaction. It doesn't have to be one of the principles. Could be somebody, somebody in the scene that's like, what? You know, just and and that's that's funnier than just playing the dialogue straight. You want to see what other people are thinking, yeah, because they're the 
They're the audience. They're taking the place of the audience. The audience relates to them because they understand that this reaction shot is telling them that whatever line of dialogue they're reacting to is pretty stupid. <laughs> so they, they say, well, okay, we, and they, and they appreciate the fact that the filmmakers are letting them in on the joke. Yeah. You know? One thing we had discussed a little bit was uh, was your work on Jennifer's body. Um, mm. uh, and I, I'm curious to get your take on that. Like, A, what were the circumstances surrounding you being brought into the film? And and, and B, what was, what was your take on the reaction to it? Because it was kind of famously not, not loved upon release, but has... Uh, in recent years, gotten a real reevaluation. I think people are people are more into it now than they were when it came out. Well, I'm, I'm happy to hear that because I thought the director Karen Kusama did a really good job on that movie, and the studio brought me in. It was Fox, and they brought me in. I had done a lot of work for Fox, in, you know, fixing movies, and they brought me in. And uh, because I guess they had had some not particularly successful previews. So I came in, and when I came in, I can't remember the name of the editor, but it was uh, a lady, and she was good. And uh, it was just me and the director and, and this uh, lady editor. And as we went through the movie, I... I had talked to the studio about some of their notes and some I agreed with and some I didn't. And so I ended up doing what I thought was right. And, and they were, Karen Kusam and the editor were, were very cooperative. I, I'm not the kind of person that comes in to fix a movie and cleans house. I think that's just a mistake. Mm -hmm. Because the editor and the director that are working on the movie know the movie much better than you do. You may have seen it once or twice. They've been living with it for six months. So use their knowledge and listen to what they have to say. Argue with them if you need to, but don't don't throw the baby out of the bathwater by getting rid of them because they're very valuable anyway. So I, I, I made these changes. And, you know, I knew some of them were not going to go over too well with the studio. So I get a call from them had a searchlight and oh my god well actually we ran the movie we ran the movie for her in a, a screening room and about half an hour into the movie she stands up screaming at me and the director and says stop the screening this is ridiculous I'm out of here like okay. <laughs> uh, great so it, it that was that was kind of awkward. Yeah. And I, I tried to, I finally ended up explaining to this head of the studio, who was no fool. Um, she was just angry that I hadn't done a lot of the things that she wanted done. And I didn't agree with them. Mm -hmm. And I told her, I said, look, you hired me to come in and make my comments and, you know, I'm trying to protect your movie. And if you disagree with me, let's argue it out and figure out a way. We ended up making a much better movie. And I, I, I was 
I couldn't figure out why the why the movie wasn't more of a hit. Mm-hmm. Um, Megan Fox and uh, Amanda Seyfried uh, were really good together. Amanda Seyfried is just a fabulous actress, mm-hmm. and and I think one of the problems was that the the teenage girl audience for which the movie was intended, just didn't like Megan Fox. Mm-hmm. There was definitely a Mean Girls uh, reaction to her around this time. Uh, she she was getting a lot of a lot of grief for her appearances in the Transformers films and some other stuff. Uh, and and yeah, I think there was there was definitely some pushback there. Yeah, but uh, but that that again is, you know, if you're gonna. <laughs> You know, it's kind of not for the faint-hearted when you're going in trying to fix a movie, especially with a strong director who's at odds with, with the studio. Mm-hmm. So you you just you just have to try to pick your spots, try to convince everybody that this is the right thing to do for the movie, and uh, don't take sides. Yeah. Yeah. The only side you want to be on is the movie. Yeah. yeah. Let's move from the halls of high school girls horror movies uh, to uh, grumpier old men. You you said you had a you had a funny story about uh, being a, a, a producer on grumpier old men. Well, uh, my friend uh, Chris McKenna, who had uh, graduated from Stanford, he had he originally was a pre med major, and then he. Uh, changes major to creative writing, I guess, because he liked the movies that Landis and I made. And he had gone to school with my son, who was now uh, an editor. And, you know, they they looked at all the, the movies that I had done. And, and Chris, when he came out of uh, Stanford, graduated from Stanford, he needed a job. And so I gave him a job as my assistant. And boy, was he good. <laughs> and so so much fun. Yeah. And uh, so we end up, end up in Minnesota on Grumpier Old Men. And Walter Matthau is shooting a movie that's being directed by his son. And he is late coming, coming to the location by about two weeks. In the meantime, Jack Lemon and his wife, Felicia Farr, have taken a house kind of on a one of the rivers in Minnesota that's you know pretty close to Minneapolis, a beautiful house, and they insisted on paying the entire amount of the rental for the period of time. Mm-hmm. It's about a hundred thousand dollars. I was very against this, but they insisted on doing it. When they got to the location. They'd only seen the house in photos. Mm-hmm. So when they got to the location, the lady that owned the house had pushed a lot of stuff into the closets. and It, it really wasn't prepared correctly for that kind of a rental, especially for that much money. Sure. And Jack Levin and his wife said, we're not staying here. And of course, they had already been paid the money. So... They told me that Walter Matthau and his wife had agreed to let them stay in the only two-bedroom suite in the, uh, I'm not sure the name of the hotel, 
but it was in St. Paul, not Minneapolis, part of the Twin Cities. And I thought to myself, should I call Walter and basically imply that I don't trust Jack Lemon? <laughs> so they move into the, the two-bedroom suite in St. Paul. And when uh, Walter Matthau gets there, he doesn't want to take the suite that they originally were supposed to have in a hotel in Minneapolis. So quite a mess. And uh, I did everything. I built a, a false door <laughs> in this other uh, hotel to try to make it. And Chris and I had you know, a big laugh about it. But I mean, it really, it kind of soured my relationship with Jack and Walter. Mm. And I, I, you know, I just felt I got, I got uh, blindsided by yeah. this. And they, they really didn't treat me very nicely. <laughs> no, that's, uh, that's not, that's not cool. You can't do that. That's no good. Um, uh, I always like to close the show by asking if there's anything I should have asked, if there's anything uh, you want folks to know about the art of editing or, you know, filmmaking in general. Uh, was there was there something uh, I should have asked or that you, you think folks should know? No, you know, uh, Sonny, I, I think we covered quite a bit here. No, I, I think this was, was pretty good. And uh, I think your questions were on point. And I was... Very, very happy that you wanted me to come on the show and, and participate. Thank you very much. Uh, well, thank you for being on the show. Uh, once again, this is George Folsey Jr., uh, legendary editor, producer, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you can see his his body of work on his IMDb page. It is very impressive. Uh, I am Sonny Bunch, culture editor at The Bulwark, and thank you for listening to the show. We'll be back next week with another episode. See you guys then. 